Whether you're shopping for grads, getting an early gift for dad, or just looking for a little something new or used for your shelf, you'll find it at HPB. And you'll get almost everything for an extra 20% off during the big sale at Half Price Books this Memorial Day weekend. Saturday, May 25th through Monday, May 27th. Save big in-store at your local Half Price Books and at HPB.com. Offer cannot be combined with other coupons. Exclusions apply. To learn more, visit HPB.com. Lemon, lime, and a drop of cherry make a simple Shirley. But what happens when Tito's handmade vodka reveals this sweet sipper's dirty secret? Stir up a Tito's dirty Sherlock and crack the case with Tito's at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who celebrates his victories the proper way with sloppy steaks at Trufani's. Here is the captain. Yes, we are the champions. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very excited to be featuring Bob's Your Uncle, which is a delicious English pub ale from the master brewers at Low Res Brewing in the Windy City, sweet home Chicago, as they say. Bob's Your Uncle is a medium-bodied brown beer featuring traditional UK hops, garage grade four out of five bottle caps. And here's a little praise and thanks to some of our good garage friends. First up, a cheers to Steve-O from the mean streets of Halstead. And a big we like to jib to Ron Runkle in Cleveland, Georgia. And last but certainly not least, we have a very special shout out to my man, Bart Harley Jarvis in beautiful parts unknown. Everyone we just mentioned, they went to truecrimegarage.com and contributed to the beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah. Pew, 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 pew. B-double-E-double-R-U-N, beer run. Make sure you go to our store page. We have a promo code going on until the 12th. So you need to get on it right now. The promo code for 25% off is Cheers2023. Check that out and everything true crime at truecrimegarage.com. And Colonel, that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
The Browns Chicken Massacre is a rather infamous case, especially in the greater Chicago area. First called the Palatine Massacre, then later known throughout the nation as the Browns Chicken Massacre, was a mass murder that occurred in Palatine, Illinois, when seven people at a Browns Chicken and Pasta fast food restaurant were killed. There are three kinds of towns. Those where everybody knows everybody. Those where nobody knows anybody and those somewhere in between, like Palatine. The newspaper headline was horrific, to say the least, and reads, Seven Massacred in Palatine. Police find bodies of two teenagers, five adults, and restaurant coolers. The Chicago Tribune reported that seven people were fatally shot and their bodies found Saturday in walk-in coolers at a family-run chicken restaurant in Palatine. Nearly 24 hours after the grisly discovery, police would not name a motive. As police inside the Browns Chicken and Pasta searched for clues, some restaurant workers speculated that the visibility of the restaurant's safe may have attracted the killer. Palatine police refused to give details of the slayings, but police sources said a local man was taken in for questioning in connection with the killings. Police said they found the bodies at about 2.30 a.m. Saturday, more than five and a half hours after closing. Authorities learned of trouble at the restaurant when parents of one employee called police, concerned that their son had not returned home from work. When officers arrived at the store, they found a rear door unlocked. Inside, they found the seven bodies, some face down in a cooler and a walk-in freezer. The slaying stunned other Browns employees who rushed to the restaurant at daybreak to learn which of their fellow workers had been killed. This is True Crime Garage. Here in the garage, we are forced to use a lot of jarring terms, such as blood and murder. But there are few words more disturbing than massacre. All of these true crime cases that we cover, we certainly understand and remind everyone that the victims in these cases and these stories are always many more than just the deceased. Unfortunately, anytime we have multiple murders, the doom and gloom factor is multiplied, of course, but also keep in mind the magnitude of the shockwave of grief, terror, and anger that spreads for miles into the neighboring communities and cities. Just like we all witnessed very recently with the Idaho University case, unfortunately now your hometown is in the national spotlight and only strictly for extremely undesirable reasons. The best you can hope for is that in some very human way that possibly unification and strength of community can rise above tragedy, and at the very least, the person or persons responsible for such senseless violence can be brought into that light, exposed, and severe punishments carried out swiftly. There are very few ways to deal with such loss, 
And that is one that I offer up to you. And that's what we have here today, Captain, in the garage. A massacre, a tragedy of great magnitude that hit this community near Chicago. Now let's go back 30 years ago, almost exactly 30 years ago to today's date. We have such great tragedy that came with so many questions. It was most certainly a massacre, and unfortunately we are talking about the murder of seven innocent people. As long as you didn't skip over looking at the title of today's show, well then you know we are talking about the Browns Chicken Massacre. You have heard us report in previous episodes quoting more than one detective when asked to describe the scene of a massacre, more than once the same haunting and disturbing phrase is given. Wholesale carnage. The name to sum up such carnage in this case first was labeled the Palatine Massacre. That's because of where this case took place in the otherwise wonderful city of Palatine, Illinois. Technically speaking, it's the village of Palatine, motto, a real hometown. And as you heard described in the trailer by at least one resident, there are three kinds of towns. Those where everybody knows everybody, those where nobody knows anybody, and those somewhere in between, like Palatine. And that would certainly fit the bill for a town of over 42,000 back in 1993. This is a northwestern residential suburb of the great city of Chicago. Palatine is one of the largest communities in Illinois, with the current population of about 68,000 people. On January 9th, 1993, no one thought that they would wake up to such horrific news. And we read just one of the headlines for you in the trailer. Seven massacred in Palatine. Police find bodies of two teenagers and five adults in restaurants' coolers. Now, because of the hour in which the murder scene was discovered by police, the story did not hit the Chicago Tribune until the following morning's paper. But the front page laid it all out there, describing what little was known about the crimes at the time. The bodies were discovered by police in walk-in coolers at the Brown's Chicken and Pasta restaurant at about 2.30 a.m., on Saturday, January 9th. For those not familiar, Brown's Chicken is a chain of fast food restaurants specializing in fried chicken. For those who are not familiar with Brown's Chicken and Pasta, its origins go all the way back to 1949. And then Brown's Chicken expanded to many locations throughout the United States in the 1970s. And to this very day, Captain, there are still a whole bunch of Brown's Chicken locations in and around the Chicago metropolitan area. As the Chicago Tribune put it, Palatine lost its innocence long ago, somewhere after World War II. But as of January 9th, 1993, Palatine joined the roster of shattered towns whose very names echoed tragedy, too enormous to place in any context. That Saturday afternoon, as word lit through Palatine that seven people had been found murdered at the local Brown's Chicken and Pasta, many residents were too stunned and baffled by the lack of details to register any grief at all. Let's dive into the timeline of this 
massacre. So the papers aren't offering much in the way of details about this case, especially early on here, Captain. But of course, we will be able to provide those details of this case, the investigation and the evidence as well. The seven people were found in the small hours of Saturday morning, but let's back up to that Friday night. The restaurant closes at 9 p.m. Now, anyone who has ever worked in the restaurant business knows exactly what this means. 9 p.m. hits, restaurant closes, doors are locked, no new customers, no more orders, no new sales. Now, we've got to clean the place, put everything away, finish up any of the daily paperwork, drop all monies in the safe, lock up and leave. Just like most food industry businesses, often the closing procedures and the staff closing duties of the restaurant, if the restaurant is slow leading up to that closing time, well, a lot of those tasks can be completed before closing, or at the very least, you can at least start on those tasks. It's been reported many times over that closing procedures at this Brown's Chicken location were usually completed by 10 p.m. So we have a situation you close at nine and roughly one hour after closing, all the duties are done and now everyone is heading home or elsewhere. Unfortunately, that would not be happening here on this night. We have many eyewitnesses in this case and almost all of them report it was business as usual on a typical Friday at Brown's Chicken. That's correct, Captain. In fact, all of them reported that it was business as usual that afternoon and that night leading up to closing. And that will be a key factor in this case. Because remember, we've talked about other cases where we have a shooting or unfortunately a massacre in a restaurant or store. And the customers of that day and of that night, they are all essentially witnesses who can later come forward and they can start to fill in the gaps of time in your timeline to when everything was fine, everything was normal. They might even be able to clue you in on a, a potential suspect or anything odd that they saw when they were present at the scene. Unfortunately here, Captain, all of our victims that we will be discussing, they were all working at Brown's that night. None of the victims were customers. The victims we have here, we said there were seven. We have husband and wife, Richard and Lynn Ellenfeld. They were actually the owners of this restaurant. Richard was 50 years of age and his wife, Lynn, was 49. Also killed were two teenage male employees, Rico Salas and Michael Castro. We also have two employees in their 30s, Thomas Menace and Marcus Nelson. And then we have the seventh victim who was a cook. This is 46-year-old Guadalupe Maldonado. The slain workers may not have been discovered until several hours later, in fact. We know that they were discovered in at 2.30 a.m. or roughly 2.30 a.m., but had certain things not fallen into place and certain people not taken certain actions that night, it could have been hours later until the discovery, this gruesome discovery there at the Brown's Chicken Restaurant. Yeah, if it weren't for the parents of Michael Castro, then they, these victims would have been found probably not till the next day when they had to open up the store. 
Michael Castro, he's 16. He was working to have extra money to spend on his prized possession, which, like most 16-year-old males, was his car. Michael spoke with his parents early in the night. I don't have a time for that, Captain, but I'm guessing it would it would have been after arriving for his shift because he spoke with them via phone. Now, one key detail he tells his parents is, hey, we're closing at nine. His parents know it takes about an hour or so for the closing duties to take place. He doesn't live very far from the restaurant at all. So mom and dad would be expecting Michael Castro to come home about 10, 15 ish on that Friday night. He tells them on the phone right after work, I'm coming straight home. So they're expecting him. Well, he's 16. So at some point it's Friday night, mom and dad realize Michael's not home around midnight is when mom and dad start getting concerned. What we have here is a gap of time where we know that the restaurant closed at nine and the bodies are not discovered until about two 30 AM. So that puts us at about a five and a half hour window where we have a lot of questions. What the hell happened in that five and a half hours where everything was fine when the restaurant closed at nine, but then we have seven victims at 2.30 a.m., five and a half hours later. Well, and like you said, one of the protocols when you're closing up shop, whether you're working in a restaurant or a bank or anything like that, is, all right, business is closed, lock the doors. So we could assume that at 9 o'clock, the doors were locked. Yes, and we can assume that. And the other thing that we can later understand is that at some point, the doors had to be locked because we get witnesses that will tell us that they found the doors in the locked position. So sometime after midnight, mom and dad, Michael Castro's parents, they're getting concerned. They don't live far from the restaurant and they decide, you know what? We'll head over there. We'll see what's going on. They drive over to the restaurant. Unfortunately, they see their son's vehicle still parked in the parking lot. The restaurant, everything from the outside appears to be normal. The doors that they checked were locked and now they're wondering, okay, what's going on? They knock on the doors. Nothing happens. Nobody answers. They return home. They decide that they're going to call the police. They notify the police that their son is missing. They tell them of everything that they know. The police are not really concerned. They don't share the same concern as the parents, but then the parents call back with, uh, with a follow-up call saying, look, this is really not like our son. And regardless of what you're saying, yes, he's 16. He could be out partying with some friends. However, the case is this. We went to his place of work where he was supposed to be and come directly home. His vehicle's still there. So unless he hopped into somebody else's vehicle, there's something going on here. Yeah. And not just Michael's vehicle, but there's other employees' vehicles that are still in the parking lot. Correct. So they really kind of push the envelope here and police show up to the Brown's chicken restaurant along with Castro's parents. They check the doors again, same result restaurants closed restaurants locked. We don't know what's going on. Everybody parts ways right now. After a little bit more of time expires, this is when the Castro parents call back and say, look, I know you've already checked the restaurant once. 
I'm insistent that the restaurant be checked again. We got to be doing more here to find my son than just waiting. When I bring up those other cars, because if I'm law enforcement and we have a teenager's parents calling saying, Hey, uh, our son's missing. Well, he, he worked that day. It's possible he went out with some friends and they picked him up from work. But what doesn't make any sense to me if I'm law enforcement is the multiple cars of multiple employees parked in the lot. Exactly. And I will say this, though, in the defense of the Palatine police here, I've worked in the restaurant business. I've worked at bars. And one thing that I loved, one of the key factors why I liked working in that business, in that industry when I was younger, was there was always somebody to hang out with. After work, if you worked the second shift or the closing shift, there was almost always a party or a gathering afterwards. That's because the colonel is a party animal. So it's not crazy to think that maybe they all went somewhere together. But as parents, you got to push the envelope. And that's what they did. So now we're checking the restaurant again. And this is when the police find a side door that was actually unlocked. The officer tells Castro's parents, and very good by the officer, says, look, you need to stay out here in the the parking lot. You can't come in here with me. I I need to go in and check out what's going on, and I'll report back to you. If you're this law enforcement officer, once you find that unlocked door, I think your nerves would shoot through the roof because that that is a red flag that is telling you there is something wrong and man god bless that guy though because he has to then tell the parents you need to stay back and it's my job and it's my duty to serve and protect and i gotta go in here well and this officer is a different officer than the one who responded the first time so he may know or may not know that the the building has been checked prior but if you did know that again Like you said, Captain, all those cars in the parking lot, nothing appears to be amiss from outside. You've got to be really concerned now that you're finding that unlocked door, given the situation. He goes in on his own. The way that this goes down is he says that once he went in there, he immediately felt like something wasn't right. So he was probably seeing some kind of signs of a struggle, but what we end up with is he stumbles upon these seven bodies. And then of course, all hell broke loose. So at approximately two 30 AM, the victims were all found in the back kitchen area. And as reported, some victims were located in the walk-in freezer and some in the walk-in cooler. Immediately the scene is sealed off. What we have here that's interesting to me, though, for our investigation and for the night in question is that the police arriving and checking the restaurant prior to 2.30, sometime after midnight, the Castro's checking the restaurant prior to 2.30, this already, to me, is going to close up some of those gaps in our timeline. So we know the restaurant closed at 9. Everybody should have been done with their closing duties around 10 and heading out of the the place of business. And once we get shortly after midnight, we know that the outside of the building appears to be in the parking lot. Everything outside is in the same state as it is found at two 30. So now we're starting to go, okay, whatever happened here, 
had to have gone down somewhere between closing time at 9 p.m. and when the restaurant was first checked after midnight. Yeah, we don't know how thorough that first check was because it's it's very possible they did a check, but they didn't check all the doors. But man, to be that officer to come across that scene, I mean, you're going to feel that in your gut, your nuts, your butt, and your pizza hut. A lot more to get to in this case right after this quick beer break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. 
it's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, Colonel, we are back. Cheers to everybody for joining us here in the garage. And cheers to another year with the Colonel. Cheers to you, Captain. Let's get back into our timeline here. So as we said, after we have this gruesome discovery, immediately the scene is sealed off. The Cook County Medical Examiner's Office is notified of the situation. And detectives and evidence technicians are requested to the scene. Evidence collection begins as soon as they arrive. Police will be busy to not disturb the bodies or the crime scene, but also collecting evidence 
all the while. They have to photograph the bodies from several different angles. So police are busy photographing and videotaping the scene. At 8.30 a.m., we have the medical examiner. This is Dr. Robert Stein. He arrives on the scene. In this case, the victim identification was delayed, and this was on purpose. It was delayed to preserve the crime scene. After the medical examiner is finished with his initial investigation, then we're going to have the technicians transport the bodies to the morgue. This does not take place or start to take place until between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. This is when the bodies were removed from the restaurant. The following day, which will be Sunday, January 10th, is when the autopsies would be performed. All these procedures, I'm assuming, are taking longer because we don't have just one victim. We have multiple victims. Let's get into the layout of this restaurant. As we are all familiar with, oftentimes there are casual and fast food restaurants located in front of or very nearby shopping malls and shopping plazas. Well, that was the case here. This store sat at an angle, almost tilted diagonal, in the square-shaped parking lot that surrounded the restaurant. Directly to the south of the restaurant, you have the Northwest Highway. To the west is North Smith Street. And to the north and the east of the restaurant, you have larger businesses. Brown's Chicken was a standalone restaurant with its own parking lot. So surrounding the parking lot for Brown's Chicken, you have these two roads that see a decent amount of traffic. And then on the other two sides, you have parking for the other larger surrounding stores and businesses. The front of the restaurant, more so facing the highway, is decorative. It has the words Brown's Chicken in large cursive lettering across the front roof side overhang. The restaurant is a square-shaped building. Windows line the front of the building with small bushes just below. It looks very similar to me to a McDonald's building. Because of this design, the entrance and exit ways were on both sides of the restaurant. So we don't have any entrance in through the front. It's on the sides, both sides. There is a set of double doors on each side. Inside, we have the front of the house with entrances, seating, and room for lines in to form in front of the two registers. And then, of course, you have the back of the house with the cookers, coolers, prep table, and office. You have the counter with two registers separating the front of the house from the back of the house. The victims were found in the back kitchen area, in the walk-in freezer and walk-in cooler area. Two of the victims, Richard Ellenfeld and Thomas Menes, were found in the cooler. This is on the west side of the restaurant. The other five victims were found in the freezer. Now, when the first officer went into the restaurant, he went in through the unlocked door. This is actually referred to by the employees, people that work there as the back door, but it's technically to the very back of one of the sides of the restaurant. Right. 
This leads directly into the kitchen area. This is referred to as the back door because this is a door that was commonly left unlocked for employees to come in and out for their shifts, for trash removal, and if they needed to bring in supplies to the restaurant. So even when it's working, if the if the employees are in there working, this door is often left unlocked just because it makes things quicker, more efficient for employees to get in and out throughout their shifts. Now, when that officer goes into that kitchen area, immediately through the door, he enters the kitchen area. As we said, he says he knows right away that something is wrong. He did see some signs of a struggle, but the sight that took him immediately from concern to crisis mode was when he spotted a hand and a foot sticking out of the partially open freezer door. As it would turn out, the hand belonged to the lone female victim and the foot sticking out was one of the teenagers that was found dead at the scene. All seven victims were shot to death. Lynn's throat was slit, but later it was stated that it was the gunshot that had killed her. Blood had pulled up significantly in the walk-ins by the time the officer found the bodies. Now, there was a good deal of holdback information in this case, and that was for good reason. One, of course, it's always good to have some holdback information. These would be intimate details of the crime that only the lead investigators and the killer or killers would know. This is also to protect the investigation itself from a false confession. I was just going to say, the more cases that we covered and we and we talk about this holdback information and and law enforcement having to keep things close to the chest. This show is a is a prime example that we live in a sick world with some sick people. But think about how sick it is that you have to hold back information because there's some sickos out there that want to confess to these crimes. Yeah, and you're going to have that on two different levels. You're going to have people that come out of the woodwork and they confess to a crime for whatever reason. Usually they got some screws loose when they're doing that, either they want to mm-hmm. take credit for something that they didn't do or they are mentally ill. That's not terribly uncommon. Right. The other thing too, that you want to protect with this holdback information is the, the integrity of your investigation and the integrity of the officers in charge of the investigation, right? Because you could have some pretty aggressive detectives and officers that are able to get to pull out a false confession from somebody who is confessing only because they feel pressured by the police. Very good point. Also in this case, what we will see is there will be reward money for information in this case, leading to an arrest and a conviction that money, just like in Delphi, it got to be a very significant amount and it grew over time. So now we have another situation where it's not terribly uncommon for someone to come forward and say things like, you know, so-and-so told me that he did the Brown's chicken murder. So why don't you go and arrest him and give me that money? Well, that's when investigators can go, no, well, what else did he supposedly tell you? Do you know where the murder weapon is? And so on. You need to give us something here before we're just going to open up our pockets and, and, uh, well, more importantly, go and arrest this man and then take him to court. Now, we'll get into the holdback information here in this case in a bit, because this is, to me, a very fascinating aspect of this case. 
it's because things were done just a little differently here in the Browns chicken case. Some details that were not held back, however, and that were released to the public through the media were, we learned just like the captain had said that all of the victims had been shot to death. The one victim also had their throat cut. We also learned very early on that some of the victims had multiple gunshot wounds and also that a bloody broom was recovered at the scene. And the locals put a lot of speculation into this bloody broom Mm -hmm. and wondered what kind of killer would have stuck around in an attempt to clean up the scene or why the, the broom would have been bloodied at all. We don't get any information from law enforcement as to why they believe that the, the broom was had a significant amount of blood on it. I think any time that there's a crime that's committed at a place of work, it can blur the lines of what the motive is. There could be a motive of revenge. There could have been a motive of just simply, we're going to rob this place and we're going to leave no eyewitnesses. But there are some times where we've seen in cases where the motive is revenge or the motive is murder. And well, we're, we're here, so we might as well just take some cash with us as we go. I want to stay at the crime scene here for a bit, Captain, and discuss one what the detectives are looking for. And two, a reminder, every crime scene is unique. Every crime is unique. It's not like playing a video game. And once you've conquered a few levels, well, you're just playing those levels again. Remember when we were kids after a while, you know, everything you knew, everything there was to know about, let's say Mario world, right? You, you play those boards. Once you've conquered them, once you've defeated them, you can forever go through those boards and there is zero mystery left to you. Now, you don't have that in real life or in these investigations. You don't solve a few murders and then get called to a scene and now with your experience, a murder scene holds no secrets to you. So every crime scene is different. Every case is unique. Of course, your experience can only help you going forward. But again, you still have to unlock the secrets of the crime scene. Now, one simple thing here, one simple fact that holds true of every crime scene investigation is that you are looking for anything that is foreign to the scene itself that could be connected or traced back to the perpetrator. It could be anything. Maybe it's something obvious, like in the Idaho case, that one foreign item was a sheath from a knife. Mm -hmm. Detectives knew the the victims were attacked with a knife and we find no knife at the scene, but oh, what is this sheath doing here? So that's an example of something very obvious. Now, we could also be talking about something that is not obvious at all. Take, for example, the 1986 Jessica Gutierrez case where that one foreign item or your one clue All the evidence they had there was one single thumbprint that was found on a window frame. So much harder to find. And by the way, that episode, we covered that episode in the garage. It's Jessica Gutierrez, episode number 48, with a follow-up episode on Off the Record, episode number 147. 
Now, while the fingerprint captain is obviously so much more difficult to find, the great thing about the fingerprint is that, God bless it, the fingerprint is so incredibly unique. So that is very good evidence because you're not only looking for that foreign item at the scene left inadvertently or otherwise by the perpetrator, but you need to be able to connect that item or trace that item back to your perp. A fingerprint is great evidence because you have fingerprint databases and because you can't take someone's fingerprint from one place and put it somewhere else. Remember, it's not just about learning who did what. It's being able to prove it. A good detective is always thinking about the court and making sure his actions, her actions hold up in court and get the conviction. The fingerprint then proves that that person, that individual was at this location, period. Now, one thing that was unique in this case was the location of the bodies. So you're at an immediate disadvantage because of the number of victims. But here you have an advantage to the bodies, uh, to where the bodies were found. We have them found in a cooler and a freezer. So in this case, you have the luxury of taking much more time at the crime scene because the bodies are secure and in the cooler or the freezer will help with preservation on some level. So you have two key factors that determine how quickly bodies should be removed from a crime scene. One is the security of the scene or the security of the bodies. Two is weather. You don't want weather to disturb your crime scene, disturb the bodies. Here, neither is a concern. Now, do we have any information on if these victims were killed where they were found or were these victims moved after they were murdered? There was a lot of evidence pointing to them being killed exactly where they were Mm -hmm. found. Now, think about this when you're thinking of crime scenes. If, If I could apply science fiction to real life here for a second, ideally, you would want, investigators would want to be able to freeze an entire crime scene, forever frozen in time, undisturbed, so it could be visited over and over again if necessary. But of course, we can't do that. So you have to get it right. You have a ticking clock hanging over your heads, counting down the minutes remaining for you to do so, for you to get it right. And until that crime scene has to be disrupted by removing the bodies and removing law enforcement and the technicians and investigators from the scene itself. Now, in this case, 1993, suburb of Chicago, keep in mind, blood evidence, blood spatter evidence, spatter investigative techniques were very much in vogue at this time. These were techniques that were being used to better understand crime scenes and trace evidence back to perpetrators. They had been using this evidence for, depending on the department, depending on the law enforcement agencies and their resources, for about 10 years or so, maybe longer in better equipped agencies. What they were learning and what they were doing with this information was this was helping them to better understand the crime scene and track down the perpetrators. But because of this, they also understood that there would be future advancements in technology. They knew that 
crime scene detection that things like blood, saliva, skin cells, and other things will eventually lead to DNA work being applied to investigations. Right. They were already talking about it specifically in this case, and of course other cases as well, but were unable to use DNA at that point. But it's absolutely brilliant that this was already on their minds, already something that they were looking forward to in this case and in other cases to solve homicides. Now, do we have any information because we know all the victims were shot? Were all the bullets of the same type? This is something that was a little bit tricky in the holdback information. Mm-hmm. So one thing that was interesting here was that it was reported that police believe that two guns were used in the commission of these crimes. What we ultimately learn is no, that wasn't the case. It was a, it was one gun, a 38 caliber. What's tricky here is I don't think that this was information that was fed to the media from law enforcement. I think that this was something that some reporter or somebody just kind of came up with, ran the idea or suggested this theory that two guns were used and police thought "Mm, no need to correct them. No need to sort that out and straighten that out for them. That now becomes holdback information for us that only we only believe that one gun was used. So obviously when you have seven victims and, and this news is coming out to locals, the fear level goes through the roof because we don't know if it's a robbery that went bad or if, like we said, a revenge killing or just some psychopath or psychopaths on the loose and a spree killing. A lot of the locals started saying, well, this is due to a lack of security to this business. Yeah. And you're going to have this, right? People, people want to throw blame around. This is a huge tragedy. Everybody's hurt. Everybody's heartbroken. We want answers. Why the hell did this happen? How can we prevent this going forward? And of course, the first thing that's pointed out, as you said, captain was this belief in a lot, in a lack of security at the Brown's chicken restaurant. And you know what? They're, they're right. I can't say that that was the whole driving force behind whatever happened here, but it is obvious that you do have a lack of security. And we know that because we talked about that quote unquote back door, technically a side door, but a door that is accessed by workers and in and out constantly. Now I will say this in Brown's defense, that's extremely common. Again, I've worked at a bunch of restaurants. The majority of them had a door that was always unlocked. If there was somebody in the building, that door was unlocked. Usually it is a back door or a side door. Now, some of the places that I've worked will have like a surrounding either fence or wall, brick wall, where yes, there's no cover from overhead, Right. But you have to be let in through a locked space and then you can access that door that remains unlocked. Well, one of the first things that I thought when examining this case was when I worked at a bank, depending on where the branch was, if we had a bunch of employees that had their cards in the parking lot, 
we were supposed to keep those doors locked until all the procedures were done. But if you're trying to be a good manager, and this is 1993, I don't think anybody had remote starts on their car. So in January, around the Chicago area, it's going to be pretty cold. So is it possible that they let people out to go start their car and then come back in? That, that's one of the things I initially uh, was interested in in this case. Yeah, and you're right. You want to figure out when the perpetrators gain access to the restaurant. Was it before they closed and locked the front doors, let's say, or was it after the closing time? Now, again, that back door, what they're calling the back door, remained unlocked. The other problems, there were some other problems with security here at this particular restaurant. One, we have owners leaving with money. Right. Now, that's not terribly uncommon. Managers often leave with money as well, but that is something to consider when looking at the overall security of your business. It's very easy to intercept somebody with a large amount of cash when they are exiting the building before they get to their vehicle. So here, the owners usually took the money home with them or would deposit it at the bank on their way home. Another problem is the safe itself was visible to customers from the counters where customers would go up to order their food and purchase their food. Right. And also the other thing, look, it's 1993. It's not, it's not 1945. There were no security cameras in this restaurant. And I, I that's something I just do not understand. And I, I get it. It's 1993. It's significantly different than things are in 2023. But not having security cameras, yes, they would have been rather expensive at the time, but we do ads for and recommend things like Simply Safe and ADT. We're very lucky to have had them as sponsors on our show. And we are huge proponents here at the garage because look at all these things that we talk about. We are recommending to everybody secure your home, secure your businesses, get security cameras, put security protocols into place. Because here's the thing. Sometimes it's not about capturing what happened or having a recording of what happened. Mm -hmm. It's also a major deterrent to somebody to come in and do something like this or attempt to rob a place. want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage make sure you subscribe to the show so many people listening that don't subscribe and it really helps the channel grow it's such an intriguing case make sure you join us back here for the conclusion tomorrow right here in the garage until then be good be kind and don't look
Lemon, lime, and a drop of cherry make a simple Shirley. But what happens when Tito's handmade vodka reveals this sweet sipper's dirty secret? Stir up a Tito's dirty Sherlock and crack the case with Tito's at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. 